Thank you, Vicki. There couldn't be a better preparation to step into the pulpit for all, and for all of us that our life is in his hands. And what assurance. Turn with me this morning, if you will, to Malachi. For you Italians, that's not Malachi. This is uh, Malachi. And Malachi chapter 4. If you have your Greek text, the Septuagint, or your Hebrew text, some of you probably do. That's Malachi 3.20, not to be confused. There's also a passage, if you're of a mind to turn there, otherwise you can just mentally note it, but Psalm 19, which is going to correlate with this. And then for better call Paul, we ask, what are you saying, Paul? And he says, this is what I'm saying. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Those are just text verses for the next phase of our teaching. And I'll be explaining that as we go along. I want to uh, mention before we get started that tomorrow night, that's June 12th, between 6 and 7, the evening hour, at Waterworks Eaton Park, there will be a discussion. All are welcome. And it's hosted by our own Steve Dzvonik. And I think he's here this morning, probably in one of the overflows. And the discussion will be hosted by him, and it will be persevering through life's adversities and afflictions through the spiritual life in Jesus Christ. So if you can't make it to encourage, you can certainly pray and support for that, I, I would would that all would be ready to discuss that question, all of us as a ministry of ministers. Last week we started, and I call it the head of the spear or the tip of the spear, and I do recommend that if you want an orientation to where I'm going next in this message, Better Call Paul, that you might tune into that somehow. And we are starting a technical Tetelestai revolution, thanks to... Jim and to Jeremy, we're going to be having the MP3s available and I think the streaming or whatever it is on a double speed. And that means that it's not so much that I'm talking like a chipmunk or anything like that. The pitch stays the same, but the way this works is it kind of sucks all the air out of the message. So you can get in 35 minutes what would normally be a 60 minute message and you don't even know that it's going that fast and it's I think it's for many people it's a better way to pick up the message for me I used to listen to thousands of tapes on double speed and I think it's better for our comprehension so that's the Tetelestai technical revolution that will be happening you'll have that option the times two option and that's I think very like if I'm saying turn to a passage and then there's 30 seconds that 30, 30 seconds is gone out of these. So it's like you'll be so happy because you won't have to listen to me so long and uh, won't have to say, now hurry up and get on with it like many of you do. So that's coming too. So the divine missions, and last week we did the tip of the spear, and for the next few weeks in various ways I'm going to fan out in kind of a military fashion, fan out the divine missions because the whole gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherein the righteousness of God is unveiled apocalyptically, it is revealed apocalyptically, is 
a divine invasion, a divine redemptive invasion into the present evil age. As Pastor Brown mentioned in his prayer, Christ died for our sins. That was an already known dogmatic stance of the church. But Paul added this, in order to rescue us from this present evil age. Christ died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. And that deliverance is enacted for all of creation, for all of humankind, and for all of history itself as a part of creation. It is a redemptive invasion, but it comes in two waves. It comes in the first wave as the divine mission one, the mission of God the Son. And secondly, it comes in the divine mission two, which is the mission of the Spirit of the Son. And that really is a continuation of the first, first mission. We are in that time right now. In Isaiah 49, 8, the second Isaiah said, quoting where the Lord spoke through him and said, a time is coming when I will be available to help you. And if you call upon me, I will support you in a day of salvation. It was predicted in Isaiah. Paul announced in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, now is that day. Now is that day of salvation. Because now is that time of what I like to call God's D-Day, a day of deliverance, a day of salvation, where God has initiated this invasion to liberate his creation from suprahuman forces known as sin, which to Paul is almost always in the singular, not plural. Paul almost always uses the word sin, hamartia, in the singular and not the plural because he's referring to sin as a supernatural enslaving power that has a hold on all of the human race. And because it has a hold on all of the human race, it has a hold on all of creation. All of creation is screaming, says the scripture, groaning, but that's not quite it. Screaming in its bondage to corruption, screaming for liberation. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was identifying with the screaming creation. He was identifying with the creation that he had come to redeem. What this message will also do is announce the meaning of tetelestai or tetelestai. What did Jesus mean when he said mission accomplished? What did he say? What did he mean when he said tetelestai? Or the Hebrew equivalent, asa, it is made, it is finished. It means a lot more than any of us ever imagined before. For God has prepared for those who love him things that eye has not seen, things that ear has not heard, things that the imagination has never conceived, as 1 Corinthians 2.9 says. So we gave you 14 preliminary points last week on the divine missions. That's the tip of the spear. Now we're fanning out. And the fanning out is going to be taking a little bit of time. And so I want to start out with the first of 14 points and then fan out. This message is actually making a spearhead into this generation. And it already has made a spearheaded move into this generation and the next one coming up and the next one after that. But now it needs to fan out and it fans out through living epistles 
and that's you. That's me. That's all of us. It fans out, and that's going to be saving for not only individuals but generations. There are two divine missions. That's the first point. The divine missions are undertaken by divine persons. A divine mission means that a divine person is sent. And the key words for that we find in the scriptures, Paul uses ex apostello, and then there's apostello, and then there's pempo used by John to be sent on a mission or given a commission. Ex apostello is one we're going to see today in Galatians chapter 4. And pempo means to be sent on a mission with a purpose. The purpose is salvific. The purpose is redemptive. The purpose may be judgment if you understand that that judgment is saving, a saving judgment. As Jesus said, I came into this world for a judgment. And as the scripture says, God sent his son by his love in order to save the world. John three sixteen and 17 in paraphrase. So the first divine mission is that of the son. A divine mission means that a divine person is sent by divine person or persons. Jesus often referred to the fact that the father has sent me into this world and that he was going to return again to the father. He said the spirit will come and convince not just a few people, but the world of sin because they cannot believe in me. They do not believe in me and indeed they cannot. So it takes the spirit even to invoke the faith. In John 16, 9, he will come and convince the world. He doesn't damn the world. His power is expressed in infinite persuasion. And I'm here because I've been persuaded. I was given a, an offer by God the Father that I could not refuse. The Father makes me an offer. I couldn't refuse. It's hard to refuse believing when the message you've heard has evoked faith. It's hard to refuse believing when the gospel itself, the power of salvation, is what ignited your belief. So there are two divine missions. The first is that of the Son. The second is that of the Spirit. And therefore, we have a Trinitarian doctrine here because the Father sends his Son, his eternally begotten Son, a divine person of the same substance as the Father. And the Spirit, who is spirated or breathed eternally by the Father and the Son, is sent by the Father and the Son. I have petitioned my Father, Jesus said, and he and we will send you the Spirit. He's with you now, but he'll also be in you forever, he said to his disciples as a small representative band of all of humanity. For the scripture says the second divine mission as the first is not only saving, but universal. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, pour out my spirit on all flesh as we'll see as we continue on our Wednesday and Thursday night studies, how that translates. So for documentation, fanning out means repetition. It means documentation. It means expansion. It means the tip of the spear that enters fans out with its effect. The gospel has an effect. 
it's a it's an effect that seems like judgment but the judgment is one of acquittal and the judgment is one of exoneration the judgment is one of a justification because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection not only accomplished on the cross but accomplished in the entire Christ event that first divine mission has seven aspects to it the incarnation when Christ became flesh, when the word, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. So that's a, div- a divine, visible mission. His life lived in obedience, which is a life lived in obedience for and as you. He obeyed. His response to the Father is what the Father regards when he thinks about you. How have you responded to the Father? The Father doesn't ask that question. He asked, how has my son responded to me for you? And the son responded by an obedience that was perfect, a perfect obedience. His whole life needs to be examined and studied. That's why we have the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because that was a saving life. His life was saving in that he was executing a response to God the Father that is required of mankind to make. And he made it for us. By one man's disobedience, many are considered sinners or under the power of sin. By one man's obedience, the same many, which is all, receive justifying life. A life that comes through being acquitted, exonerated, forgiven. And so the second aspect of his first divine mission is... A life of obedience. The third, and this is where it gets to the heart of the matter, is an obedience that culminates in death, even death by crucifixion, says Philippians 2.8. And then burial, for he was buried, which is a strong attestation to his physical death, even as the blood that emerged from his side on the cross in 1934, along with water, was a testimony to his actual physical death, so was his burial. And resurrected from the dead is the fifth element. And then elevation or being ascended, God causing him to ascend. The Holy Spirit will come and convince the world of righteousness, Jesus said. Righteousness is what God has done in Christ. He will convince or persuade the world of righteousness because I go to my father. Why did he, what did he mean by that? He means that righteousness comes to all the human race because Jesus went to the Father through the cross where he accomplished redemption. He accomplished eternal redemption. He died for the sins of the world. He was propitiation and still is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the world. So the Holy Spirit who convinces the world of sin because they do not believe evokes faith. And he convinces the world of righteousness, which is what God has done in Christ, according to Psalm 30, 22, 31, and 32, if you're looking at the Septuagint. It's what God has done. So the gospel is in it, by it, the gospel. The righteousness of God, or what God has done in Christ, is being apocalyptically revealed. To be revealed is one thing. To be apocalyptically revealed means that supernatural powers and universal application is involved in an apocalypse. The apocalypse of John ends with this. And I heard the enthroned one say, 
Look, I'm making everything new. And that's the new creation. Galatians ends with the same thing. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision are labels that mean anything, but a new creation, he says in Galatians 6.15. Paul's epistle to the Galatians was an apocalypse, just like John's book of Revelation was an apocalypse. When you say apocalypse, you mean an unveiling that affects all, an unveiling that is redemptive and affects all. Mel Gibson actually had it right in his movie Apocalypto by defining Apocalypto as a new beginning. Because that's not what our generation thinks. We think of apocalypse, we think of destruction, we think of judgment, we think of Armageddon, we think of all those things that are not what God intended by that word, apocalypse. So what do you say about this, Paul? Galatians 4.1, and I'll be hitting this with more detail on Wednesdays and Thursdays, but he says in Galatians 4.1, so I say, what are you saying? And Paul says, now what I'm saying, and that continues an analogy that we've been studying from common human affairs about inheritance, last will and testament, which he set in motion in 3.15. What I'm saying is that the whole time that the heir is a minor, he is no different from a slave, even though in prospect he is Lord of all. I'll be explaining that. Not today, but... The German says, Herr über alles, Lord over all. And so it is with us, Paul says. So it is with us. Us. When Paul says us, he means humanity in general. He doesn't just mean Jews. He doesn't just mean Gentiles. He doesn't just mean a group of graced out pagans in Galatia. Graced out Irishmen is what they were. Gaelic, Celtic peoples. He's talking about all of us. This is the heart, and this is what I want you to see today, a vision of a rising sun called the sun of righteousness. A vision of the rising sun called the sun of righteousness. It has been rightly suggested by Lou Martin. Tony Sadar brought this up prophetically in his message a few weeks ago, that Galatians 4, 3 to 5, is the center of Galatians. And he called it a sun whose rays shine out throughout and cover the entire epistle. The sun whose rays fan out and cover the whole epistle. Now, at the heart of Galatians 4, 3 to 4, is Galatians 4, 4, which says, But when the fullness of time came... God sent forth his son, ex apostolo. God sent forth his son. Do you realize that's the, if Galatians 4, 3 to 5 is the heart, Galatians 4, 4 is the heart of the heart. And it's interesting to me that we started with John's gospel a few years ago, and the same heart of John's gospel is that God sent his son. 
Right here is the heart of the heart of the heart of the matter. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, under the law means a lot more than just something historical. It means that he shared everything about the human condition, although he was sinless. He shared everything about the human condition, which was under slavery to the law because sin had hijacked the law. The strength of sin is in the law. The Torah itself became an enslaving power. It's called the curse of the law. And the curse of the law is what Paul deals with in Galatians 3. And remember what he said. Christ redeemed us, all of us, from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For as it stands written, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. That means Christ hung upon a tree as every man to take away the curse of the law. Born under the law, says 4.4. We're still in conversation with Paul. Born of a woman, born under the law. So he too, like us, was kind of a minor, M-I-N-O-R, In order to redeem, that means to deliver, to buy back, to liberate those under the power of law. That is all of humanity. And the reason for that is not just the Jews are under the slavery to the law, but because sin, that supernatural power, hijacked the law for its own purpose. Then all of the human race was under the curse of the law because all of the human race is under Sin. And that's a good thing because that means when God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law, it was in order to redeem those under the power of the law. That's all of humanity as we're going to see more and more. I'm going to unfold this and unfurl this flag in coming weeks in order that we would receive the full privilege of legal heirs. That's under Roman terms, adoption as sons. This too, along with Galatians 3.26 and Hosea 2.1, we've been dealing with on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I'm going to keep that for then. So he says in verse 6, here's mission 2, divine mission 2. Now, as you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son. Ex apostello, God sent forth the spirit of his son. This is where it gets intensely personal. Into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's participation in the Son. We have our salvation is our participation in the Son. The Son uniquely called God, Abba. And most poignantly in Gethsemane. Abba, if it's at all possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, he speaks for all of humankind, but yours be done. What's God's will? That all men be saved. That all human beings be saved. That creation be redeemed from its slavery to corruption. So, so that that will would be done, Jesus proceeded to the cross. And proceeding to the cross, he proceeded to burial, resurrection, elevation, 
and enthronement. All of these are saving events. You participate in all of these. Of righteousness because I go to my Father means that your righteousness is your participation in Christ, in the victory of Christ, which we have seen as a downward and an upward trajectory. It's a V. We participate in the downward trajectory of Jesus Christ. He came. He was incarnate. He went to the cross in the downward trajectory. He was buried And then we participate in the upward trajectory. On the way back to the Father, we have also been raised with him. We've been seated together with him in the heavenly places. We've been elevated together with him. All these things are true of you, and that's victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if I ever do this to you from a distance, it's not peace, although it could be that. It's victory. It's not the hippies of the 60s. It's Churchill in World War II. Victory. Now, so verse 6 again, the second divine mission. You see the two divine missions are in Galatians 4. Most compactly stated in all the scriptures, the two divine missions right here at the heart of hearts. Now, what I want to do in the second phase of the message today, and this will be twice as fast if you choose the times two option, and I would, I would if I were you. I'd, I think I'd give that a shot, especially in today's world of unrealistically busy schedules. The Times 2 revolution. I want you to have a vision of what this is, this son of righteousness. And that's why I asked you to turn to Malachi chapter 4. In verse 1 it says, For indeed the day is coming, says the scripture, says Yahweh, burning like a furnace. You can just see the hellfire and brimstone preachers rubbing their hands on this one. Oh, I can't wait to scare the hell out of my congregation. Sorry, I've already done that. The day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of the armies, not leaving them root or branches. Now, how do you interpret this? Well, I would say our God is a consuming fire in Hebrews twelve twenty nine, But I would also say that God's love is that fire. The fire of love is the most vehement flame, said Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7. The power of love, the the heat of love, has a most vehement flame. The hottest fire is not the fire of hell. It's the fire of God's love that consumes root and branch of the arrogant Adamic nature. The arrogant Adamic ontology. God doesn't destroy people. He destroys people's attachment to the first Adam. That's where his wrath is felt. That's where his wrath comes. God does not destroy creation. He destroys that which has kept creation in enslavement. Just as when the three Hebrew young men who didn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, and that's a great message for uh, this generation, didn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, didn't surrender under Stockholm Syndrome to an idealistic and idolistic, idolatrous, Religious culture. 
which this generation is quickly rolling over to. They stood against the idolatry of their times. As a result, they were thrown into a furnace that was heated up seven times hotter than ever in the desert region of Shinar. So everyone could see it. And the king Nebuchadnezzar saw it. And as they were in that fire, Nebuchadnezzar himself said, I thought we threw three men into that fire. I see four in there. And the fourth one looks like the son of God. A son of the gods, as he would say. They came out of that fire. Nothing touched them. The only thing that burned was the bands that held them, the ropes that bound them, the fastening ropes that bound them. So you talk about a fire of judgment, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and every man's works will be tested. Every person's work will be tested of what quality they are, and they will be tested by fire. But the fire is only sent to destroy the things that bind, the things that bind us to an old creation, the things that bind us to the Adamic nature, the Adamic disobedience. And so that's how I would interpret this Malachi 4.1. The day is coming burning like a furnace, burning like a furnace. Our God is a consuming fire. So the fire that consumes is his love. His love consumes the arrogant and the doers of evil by a judgment that acquits them. I should probably repeat that because it may not be stated in many other pulpits across the land today. I'm not saying that in any negative way, but it just might be an observation. His love consumes the arrogant... And you'll find, incidentally, a personal application of this because we have arrogance. And the person that says, not me, is the most arrogant of all. And that is what God consumes in the fire of his word. The fire of his word. Jeremiah said, your word was in me like a fire. And you have made the people the stubble. My word is like a hammer, God says. It doesn't hammer you to death. It hammers that which keeps you bound to the Adamic ontology, to slavery, to sin, slavery to the fear of death, and slavery to the law as it's been hijacked by sin and death. So his love consumes the arrogant and the doers of evil by a judgment that acquits them and a power that transforms them. In the end, every tongue confesses and every knee willingly bends so that all who fear his name will be all of humankind. Look at verse 2 of Malachi 4. And we'll... Back up a little bit after that. Malachi 4 says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise. Now, whatever is prophetic in the Old Testament is realized in the new. The son of righteousness has arisen. That's a resurrection prediction, incidentally. For those who fear my name, that's going to be everybody because every knee will genuflect ultimately. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. You say, what do you, 
How does the sun have wings? Well, obviously, it's a poetic reference to the rays, the beams that come from the sun. Healing in the rays means a miraculous cure for whatever the rays reach. And in Psalm 19, if I don't get to it today, I just want you to know that in Psalm 19, for the sun is likened, I'm talking about our natural son, is likened to a bridegroom that comes out of his chamber and he makes a walk. He takes a walk and he goes across the whole horizon so that nothing in the whole of the earth escapes the rays of the sun in that 24-hour period. In other words, we have a picture of Jesus Christ risen in his universally saving significance. He arises with healings in his wings. Healing, or literally, iasis in the Greek is a miraculous cure, a solution to the problem of evil and bondage and slavery. In his wings, in his rays. And this made me go right back to Revelation. When John on the Isle of Patmos hears a voice, and a voice sounds like many waters, as if this person is speaking for all of humankind and in all of humankind. And he turns to see the source of the voice that spoke to him, and he sees the Son of Man. And among the things that he describes that are, is that his face shone like the sun in its noonday strength. Why? Because the Son of Righteousness had arisen. He said to John, don't fear, stop fearing. John fell at his feet as a dead man. And he looked like a dead man. And Jesus looks down at him, puts his right hand on him and says, hey, I really was dead. But look at me now. I'm alive forevermore with a life that you never imagined, an animation, an incorruptible life, an immortal life, a life charged with eternal uninterrupted joy. Look at me. I'm alive. The son of righteousness had arisen with healing in his rays. And that's why I want to look at Galatians as that sun, the sun being sent right at the heart. The rays go out and they go all the way back and illuminate the Old Testament. They go all the way forward and illuminate the New Testament. And they go all the way forward and illuminate our generation of desperation and of rejection of the gospel. And then he says... And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Little calves freed from being hobbled and stuck in little stalls. That's a picture of our confinement under the law taken in hand by sin. Our fear of death, the supernatural power of death. And then all of a sudden the cords are broken, the stall is blown away, and the calves go out into the field and leap and play that's liberation that is transformation now in order to build this carefully I will take you to Psalm 19 if you don't have a Bible you can mentally note this or if you have a notebook you can note it and I think we still have Bibles in case you come next week and don't have one but Psalm 19 I just want you to get this vision I think that's what the Spirit's directing now so I'll just follow his lead but I want you to get this picture of the son like our natural son the son of righteousness as this predicts that he will arise 
Just as Isaiah predicted that the day of salvation is coming, Paul said, now is that day, I will say to you, that son of righteousness has arisen. This is a day of salvation. If you look at the news, you see it as a day of destruction. But if you look at the good news, you see this as a day of salvation. Everything that I see happening in history and in current events as grotesque and gross, and sometimes you see the vicious, divisive hatred in our country, which is nothing to do with politics. It has to do with outside influences that are intending this divisiveness to destroy this country. So both sides are feeding into the same self-destructive notion. But in seeing all this, I'm saying and seeing a day of salvation. People are looking to people. People are looking to institutions. People are looking to one another and to groups and grouping up in associations for salvation. They're looking for safe spaces. I'll tell you about a safe space. I know all about it. It's called En Cristo. It's called In Christ. You tell the Chinese Christians last week whose church was burned down and destroyed and 40 of them were beaten by the government who's cracking down on the Chinese Christians. You talk to them about safe spaces. Talk about the 215 million people under severe persecution, some of whose children have been crucified, people that are burned. You tell them about safe spaces. This generation has to toughen up, and I mean toughen up with spiritual iron and grit. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that does it, and nothing else will do it. It's the revelation of God in Christ. But here's this vision of the Son, Psalm 19.4. He's talking about the message of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth declares his handiwork. He says their message has gone out to all the earth. Paul quotes this in Psalm, in Romans 10, 18. Does not the scripture say their message has gone out into all the earth, meaning the gospel will reach all. But then he says in their words to the end of the inhabited world, in the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. There it is again. He is, it is like a groom coming from the bridal chamber. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. There's two metaphors there. A bride coming from his chamber, obviously, to go get the bride. The bridegroom, rather, coming from his chamber to go get the bride. And the athlete... It pictures an agonizing athlete running the course. Paul said, I have finished the course. Jesus said, finished. He had agonized on the cross. And his agony is the power that went forth to create a new creation. The agony of Christ on the cross is the birth pangs of a new creation born out from him. And if any person is in Christ, new creation. But watch how this goes. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to their other end. And here's the ticket right here. Nothing is hidden 
from its heat. Nothing is hidden from its heat. We have a picture of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance as an athlete running his course, as a bridegroom from his chamber. But we see this taking a circuit. He takes a circuit over the whole of the earth because nothing in all the world escapes his Heat, because the rays or his wings touch everything and the wings are filled with, filled with healing or salvific power, miraculous healing, a cure for the problem of evil, which you and I have a created participation in as we are in Christ, as we function in the Spirit, as we say, Abba, Father, and as the Holy Spirit who has given to us pours out the love of God in our hearts. That is what announces and demonstrates the healing rays. So if you put, if you put Malachi 4, 1 and 2 together with Psalm 19, for six, you see that the sun arises with healing, and that's salvation in his rays. But the sun doesn't just stay there. He goes around the whole circle of the earth so that nothing escapes the heat of the rays, the warming heat of healing, salvific power from God. The sun of righteousness has arisen with healing in his wings, This is the day of salvation. This is D-Day. This is the day when two divine missions are running concurrently. The visible divine mission of Christ continues in the invisible mission where we are in Christ and Christ is in us and we speak, Paul says. You seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. He says he is. And test yourselves. Christ is in you too. This is a day of salvation. It's D-Day, but D stands for deliverance. And God has invaded the human race on a redemptive mission, not a destructive mission. God has invaded creation on a, not a destructive mission. Look, I'm making everything new. The end goes back to the beginning. Genesis 1.1 tells the whole story in the first few words. NRK, in Christ, the heavens and the earth were made. When Christ cried out, finished, he said, it is made. Not just it is done, it is made. What is made? The new creation. The agony of birth that preceded the new creation was finished on Calvary's cross. In the agonizing athlete who is now a bridegroom coming forth from his chamber to be united with his bride. And his bride ain't just a few lucky people called the church. The bride is all of creation and all of humanity at the heart of that creation and all of history redeemed for he redeems the time. He restores the years. And so nothing is hidden from the warmth of the rays of the sun. S-O-N, S-U-N. Nothing escapes the healing effect of the rays of the sun of righteousness. Say, what relevance does this have to Paul? Everything. I'm telling you the entire epistolary correspondence of Paul has at its heart the sun of righteousness, and its rays fill everything. 
goes back in the Old Testament, goes back to in goes forward in history. So in closing, the son of righteousness, who with healing in his wings or rays or beams is a depiction of Jesus Christ. He would have said on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, speaking of everyone from Moses to all the prophets, he would have talked about Malachi. He said, see that son of righteousness? That's me. All these things testify of me. I'm risen now. I'm the son of righteousness. I want you guys to go into all the world and proclaim this gospel because the rays that come from the risen sun are going to touch everywhere. Nothing escapes the heat. Not the highest mountaintops and Alps. Not the lowest rivers of the jungle. Nothing escapes the heat of the sun. Nothing escapes the salvific word of Christ. It's a revelation, this sun is, that shoots its beams back through the Old Testament and throughout the entirety When it says that people read the Old Testament, even to this day, Paul said, people of his own kin, they read the gospel, but the veil is over their heart. But when the heart turns to the Lord and the the Lord causes the heart to turn to the Lord, the veil is removed and they see, where do they see? What do they see in the Old Testament? Christ everywhere. You search the scriptures, you guys, Jesus said to the scholars of his time, because in them you think you have eternal life. You think you have eternal life through reading 10 chapters a day. You think you're gaining it. But you don't come to me that you have life, that you may have life. You know, I've seen all the work I've ever done in the ministry for 39 years now, plus some in Vermont. And I've seen it consumed. Everything I've ever said is a consuming, self-consuming document. All burned up behind That's why series, old series are not on anymore. They've been consumed by a greater light, consumed by a greater light. And eventually everything is consumed to reveal the light of the Son of God. That's why Aquinas, when he was done, said in age 47, on the verge of his death, he said, everything I've ever done and written is straw. It wasn't a message of defeat. It was a message of a self consuming servant of God and a self-consuming ministry that in its consuming the son comes forth revealed the son of God I'll explain that more as we go on because I've seen it all now as consumed in a good way things get left when things are consumed too and uh That's yet to be revealed. Nothing is hidden from his healing rays. Nothing escapes the impact of the crucified one and the risen one. Everything will be instarated, which is the the word I use for impacted redemptively by the cross, transformed necessarily by the resurrection. God sent his son that the world would be saved. John, do you agree with Paul? I agree wholeheartedly with Paul. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but so that through him the world would be saved. And so the judgment that he brings with him is not one unto condemnation. That's a judgment he receives. So that sin is condemned in his flesh. The judgment he comes to bring is a judgment of acquittal and transformation. And I keep going back to Jürgen Moltmann's statement, which shocked me at first, but I cherish it now. God's punishment for evildoers is transformation by grace. You get a a terrible criminal. You got two options. Fry him in an electric chair or change him so that he's just like Jesus Christ. Which option will you pick? It depends on whether you're vengeful and vindictive or like God. God makes people like Christ. That's his judgment. The judgment is you're no longer what you were. I find that refreshing. God sent his son into the world that the world be saved with him through him. Consequently, to redeem us. In Galatians 4, means to redeem all of us, called the world, from the cursing and enslaving power of the law. The law had a confining and enslaving power over the whole of the human race, not just Israel, because the law was hijacked by sin which had passed to all humankind. So the law became a curse to everyone under sin, and that's everyone, period, over and out. That's an important thing to recognize, even though you might not think so yet. It'll be very important to recognize in the end. And so I want to quote with a couple of, or end with a couple of quotes from guys I've been reading, because I do do that every day, even when projects are going on in my house and jackhammers are heard. I'm studying. Even on vacation, when it's 80 degrees without a cloud in the sky and the sun's out and the rays are striking the beach, I'm studying for a little while. I like what Kazeman said. I've been reading his Romans thing, page 138, Ernst Kazeman. God's love, he said, is more than an action which take care, takes care of our deficiencies. It is almighty power which effects salvation, brings forth the creation out of nothing, and puts an end to wrath. You ever hear that definition of love? I'll say it again. God's love is more than an action which takes care of our deficiencies. It is almighty power which effects salvation, brings forth the creation out of nothing, and puts an end to wrath. That's God's love. And in connection with this, Thomas J. Torrance, in his extremely powerful book called The Mediation of Christ, said this on page 27 and 28, speaking of Israel and of all people. He said this, there were evidently critical moments in Israel's history when it seemed ready to do anything to flout the will of God in the hope of breaking loose from the grip of his unswerving love. 
and escaping from the painful transformation of his existence. I'll just stop there for a minute. As a pastor, I'll say to you, has your transformation sometimes been painful? It has been given to us not only to believe in him, but also to uh, suffer. It's a painful transformation. I won't sugarcoat it. I won't even say that the spiritual life is a safe place. It's anything but. You've got to put on the full armor from God there and keep it. Above all, the shield of faith. But he says, they did everything they could to get away from his unswerving love and escape from the painful transformation of his existence that relations with the Holy One of Israel involved. No, the covenant, he said, was not made with a holy people. Nor did its validity depend upon a contractual fulfillment of its conditions on the part of Israel. For it was a unilateral covenant which depended for its fulfillment upon the unconditional grace of God and the unrelenting purpose of reconciliation which he had pledged to work out, listen to the last phrase, through Israel for all peoples. And he did it. This is my take. He did it through Israel by doing it in and through Jesus Christ, the only faithful Israelite. Now, this is setting us up for two things or for a future generation, some future preacher just to do this in the future. An exposition of Romans. Because the righteousness of God is what Romans has been hovering around since Luther, since before Luther, since Augustine, the righteousness of God. Some have said it's the justice of God. Some have said it's the attribute of God's righteousness. What if the righteousness of God is what he has accomplished in Christ? Then the whole gospel of, and the whole epistle to Romans has to take on a whole new gracious bent because it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. That means from God's faithfulness demonstrated in Christ to man's faithfulness, which is a continuation of Christ's faithfulness, which explains to all those who believe, whether Jew or Greek in 116. But if we say in it or by it, the gospel, the deliverance of God enacted in Christ is being apocalyptically revealed, apocalypto, to result in a new creation. That is a total transformation of the epistle of Romans from the very start. And then from the very heart, God sent his son, the son of righteousness, whose rays shine everywhere is the scaffolding for a, an exposition of Galatians. Those two books are going to be powerfully expounded in the next couple generations to the salvation of those little children you pray for, your grandchildren and their generation. The son is pictured as having wings. And that's poetic for the rays or the beams 
of the emanation of the sun. And as the patristic theologians said back in the early centuries of the church, that healing is a miraculous cure. And they said the apokatastasis pantone, which is the Greek word for the restoration of all things after all, is going to be a miracle of God's unconditional grace. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to stare into the face of our Lord Jesus Christ and to see beaming from his face like the sun in its strength the promise of salvation. Father, I can't thank you enough because I see this happen day by day in this church. I see it happen in the faces of believers as well as through the exposition of the word. You are painting for us as every night you paint a new sunset and every morning a new sunrise so that none duplicates the other. Every day you are painting an endlessly glorious portrait of Jesus Christ in his universally saving importance. And it's this vision, Father, that you've granted us and thank you for it because without it, we perish without it. We're locked in the stall and hobbled, but with it, we're liberated and leap like calves, demonstrating that not just human beings, but all creation will experience this liberation. Occupy us not with ourselves, but with your son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.